I'm going to have you look in your Bibles to chapter 13 of Revelation. We're back to the book of Revelation. We uh, uh, took a, a time off because we had Labor Day weekend and family camp. And then last Sunday we had a number of men go down to men's roundup down around the Lebanon, Oregon area there. But uh, for the most part, maybe we've got our church back together. And so I want to continue on with this series in Revelation that I've had. And I may exhaust you, my audience, but let me tell you for sure, I will not exhaust, exhaust my material. I am so overwhelmed with all the material. Uh, I probably read more and marked more uh, uh, material uh, for this message than I have for many hundreds of others that I have prepared for in the past. It's interesting to me that the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, prior to writing this book, wrote those epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And... uh, in his letter to First John, he already warned his Christian recipients about the Antichrist who was to come. He writes in First John 2.18, Children, those are believers, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared from this we know that it is the last hour. Already, he had instructed these new Christians about the Antichrist who is to come. The Apostle Paul left his ministry in Philippi. He traveled on foot about a hundred miles north to the town or city of Thessalonica. And there he spent two weeks before he was driven out by the people of the synagogue there. And in those two weeks, he was able to bring many of the Thessalonians to saving faith. And evidently, during that two-week period, he also instructed them about the coming Antichrist. In fact, we learn when he wrote back to the Thessalonian believers, he wrote these words, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, the falling away, and listen to this, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's the Antichrist, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And then he has these words, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things. That's intriguing to me that both John the Apostle and the Apostle Paul instructed these new believers about the coming Antichrist. That's just amazing. And notice how important that teaching was to their converts. Of course, it came from God the Holy Spirit because we asked where did they get this information about this person called the Antichrist. And it came from God the Holy Spirit, but he also used the written word to instruct them. Because Daniel wrote about this man, this Antichrist, about 500 years before the Lord Jesus Christ came the first time to the earth, born of the Virgin Mary. And what did he have to say about the coming Antichrist? He described him as the little horn, possessing eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. Daniel further said this person would speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints for three and one half years period of time. He also described him as the king who will be insolent and skilled in intrigue, who will possess unusual might and he will use, that he will use to destroy to an extraordinary degree. He will govern and control the world by deceit, succeeding in his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart and will destroy many while they are at ease, but he will be broken and that without human agency. 
Daniel further tells us that this man will magnify himself above all gods and will honor a god of fortresses, evidently a god of power, might, military might. He will make a covenant of peace with with Daniel's people Israel, but will break his covenant with them in the middle of the week for seven years. And again, Daniel states, this prince... This king will come to his end and no one will help him. Daniel calls him the little horn, the beast, a king, the prince who is to come, and a despicable person. Both John and Paul also knew what Jesus had taught about this coming Antichrist. Jesus said, therefore you will see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand. That means let you and me today understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And so Jesus confirmed the words of Daniel, the statesman that was given nearly 500 years before the Lord came to the earth. And that is found in Matthew chapter 24. But I ask myself this question. What was the difference between the believers, what they were going through under the reign of such tyrants as Nero and Domitian, who both brought severe persecution against the Christians back then when Paul and John lived and ministered? What was the difference between them and the world right now today that you and I are living in? nearly 2,000 years later. You can certainly understand why those Christians back then who were suffering thought they might be in the tribulation and Nero or Domitian would be the Antichrist. You can understand that. And by the way, as John taught and wrote, there were indeed many Antichrists, but not the Antichrist who would be the final world ruler. So, what's the difference? between back then, where those Christians were suffering and being martyred uh, by such emperors as Roman, uh, as Nero and Domitian, and right now, today, while we're, the day we're living in. Of course, we now know that the Roman Empire did not include the entire globe, the entire world. Rome did not conquer the people living in such places as China, the Americas, and many other places. But most importantly, listen, no peace treaty had been made with Israel, and there had been no abomination of their temple where the image that was declared would be made was placed in their temple, causing them to desolate it, desolate it, that is, depart from it. So that wasn't standing in the temple. And yet today we know about every place on the face of the earth. And we are familiar with such nomenclature as globalism, the World Bank, the World Court, the United Nations, and so forth. Though it is 24,000 miles around the earth, it has become a very small planet. You can get any place on the planet within hours now, can you not? And then with that background, I want to talk with you this morning, as well as next Sunday morning, the Lord willing, about the two most dangerous men in the world. That's what we're going to be talking about today, and Lord willing, the next Sunday. The two most dangerous men in the world. We meet them both in the 13th chapter of Revelation, and the first is described as a beast that comes out of the sea, and the second is described as a beast that comes out of the earth. We know them as the Antichrist and as the false prophet, his right, the Antichrist's right-hand man. And they are indeed, dear ones, the most dangerous men ever to live in the world. This morning, we're going to learn about this first beast called the Antichrist. And I want to read for you at this time, chapter 13, the first 10 verses. They'll be up here on the wall here behind me if you didn't bring your Bible. But let me begin with those 10 verses of Revelation chapter 13. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. 
And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to make war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for forty-two months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, and that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword, he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. In your outline, we're going to begin with that first major point. Your outline is in your bulletin if you would like to use that. The final world leader's origin and ferocious character. We begin with that. The final world leader's origin and ferocious character. Let me read verses 1 and 2 again. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems. And on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. And his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Number one, he comes up out of the sea. That's what it states. This man, the most dangerous man the world will ever know, will come up out of the sea. What does that mean? Well, the authorized King James Version in that first verse says, I, and that would be a reference to John if that is what should be there. He said, I stood upon the sand of the sea. That would be John standing there looking. Or the one I just read uh, has the pronoun he, and that he would refer back to the great red dragon. Now, there's manuscript uh, support for both. It won't make a difference as far as the interpretation is concerned. I want you to understand that. However, I want you to see if it is the pronoun he referring to the great red dragon, it is a flow from chapter 12 right into chapter 13. Because what happened in chapter 12? You remember that Satan was cast out of heaven at the midpoint of the tribulation. The tribulation is seven years long. At the midpoint, after three and a half years of it had run its course, then there was war in heaven, chapter 12 says, and Satan was, that is Michael and his angels, cast Satan and his angels out of heaven down to the earth. You're also told that the devil says he knew he had but a short time left. And in rage, in wrath, He went forth to destroy the remnant of Israel as well as those who uh, adhered to the commands of the Lord and followed Jesus. And so you can see if he is cast out of heaven at the midpoint, and now chapter 13, by the way, originally there were no chapter divisions, there were no verses. It was written by John, and just one one sentence after another with maybe some paragraphs. But you didn't have the chapters or the divisions. And so you can see, Satan has been cast out of heaven. He knows he has but a short time. And now he must move. He must act. And he's doing it in rage, knowing that he's got but, but a short time. In fact, he knows he has just three and one half years to act. So that is what you have before you. But remember, Satan is a spirit being. 
He is a spirit being. So how is he going to accomplish his diabolical plan? Well, he always uses human beings to accomplish his purposes. You should know that. You see it all around you. You see it in politics. You see it in our world system. He Fallen angels, demons want to dwell in people. They use, they control people. They know people have been created in God's image and they do all that they can to destroy that image in order to dishonor God. That's why Satan is called the God of this world who blinds the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And I'll tell you something. If you're here this morning and you're not genuinely saved, he will do everything he can in his power. Believe me, those demons are here because they do not want you to hear the word of God and get saved. And you can imagine, wherever God's people are, wherever they are proclaiming the Word of God, wherever they're worshiping the Lord, that enrages this great red dragon. That enrages those who are under His dominion and control, those fallen angels, those demons, and they're here to dissuade you in every way they can, to get your your mind off of God, off of His Word. They don't want you to get saved. They don't want you to know Him. They don't want you to walk with Him, because then they lose out and God is glorified in your life. And so he knows that his time is short. And we're clearly told in chapter 12, he's come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. In fact, he knows he has only three and one half years left to accomplish his diabolical purpose. And what is that purpose? What is that purpose? He has longed for centuries to set up a one world government solely controlled by him. And to do so for the purpose of destroying Israel and every person who belongs to or would belong to Jesus Christ and God so as to keep Jesus Christ, the Son of God, from ever being able to fulfill His promises to Israel and return and set up His kingdom. That is why He is, that is His purpose. He has long desired to be worshipped as God. And now, and now His Hour has come. And believe me, I think we see the makings of that even today. Through the centuries, Satan, the great red dragon, has raised up men. But the timing has always been wrong until now. He has had his Nimrod, the Tower of Babel. He has had his Pharaoh, his Nebuchadnezzar. I'm just naming a few of it. His Nero, his Domitian, as well as in these latter times, his Adolf Hitler. I think he thought, this is my time, I'm going to move. And God said no. He's had his Stalin. And many, many other names could be added to that list. But now is his number one man, the most dangerous in the man in the world's time to come. And he knows it. And that brings us in, well, number G, I'm sorry, you don't have the the letters there. Satan has been cast out of heaven and is now down here upon the earth, ready to indwell his number one man. This man is seen by John as being a beast coming up out of the sea in different places in Scripture. By the way, the sea is used to describe all of the mass of humanity. That means the Gentile realm as opposed to the Jewish. But also, Daniel used it to describe the Mediterranean area. And so, most likely, it's both. This man will be a Gentile, and he will come from the Mediterranean area. That's why it says, John saw him coming up out of the sea. This beast coming up out of the sea of humanity, therefore, will most likely tells us that he will be, the Antichrist will be a Gentile, not a Jew. And he'll most likely come from that area of the Mediterranean over there in Europe. Number two, he is described, though, as being a dreadful beast. He is described here as being a dreadful beast. By the way, he is just like his father. For he's described just as this great red dragon is described in chapter 12, verse 2. Number, he, he has, number eight there in your outline, he has ten horns and seven heads. Now remember, John's watching this. Whether he's the one standing on the seashore or not, he's watching this as this beast suddenly emerges, coming up out of the sea there. And what a 
frightening image he beholds here. This thing comes up having ten horns and seven heads. That's probably what he saw first. Obviously, by the way, this is figurative language, but we can deduce from some valuable information from this language. Horns on an animal represent its power, its strength. They use it to fight other animals as well as to protect themselves. These ten horns were mentioned by Daniel as well. And you'll notice they're mentioned over in chapter 17, verse 12. Turn there if you would. Chapter 17, verse 12. There we read. We have an explanation of them. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. But they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. And that one hour would be that three and one half years. So we have an explanation of those horns. There are ten kings that have not yet come. They know at that point they did not have their, their power and their kingdom uh, when John wrote this. The seven heads, by the way, are also described. Look at chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. Chapter 17, verses 9 and 10, it explains these seven heads. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and there are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. Now, beloved, there are two schools of thought in interpreting what we just read there. One school of thought says what he's talking about is Roman emperors. And the one that would be at that point would be Domitian. And the one yet to come would be the Antichrist. And of course the other uh, five that you had uh, would be the emperors prior to that. I don't have them written down here, but I could get them if anybody wants them. That's one school of thought. The other school of thought is he's talking about kingdoms that were ruled by kings. And if that would be the case, then the five which were no longer in existence would have been Egypt, Assyria, Babylonia, Medo-Persia, and Greece. The one that is would be Rome. And the one yet to come would be the revived Roman Empire out of which the Antichrist will establish his one world kingdom. So those are your two schools of thought. I don't know that it's really important that we be able to nail down exactly which one is accurate, but let's go on to number B in your outline. On his horns were ten diadems, it says there, chapter 13, verse 1. On his horns were ten diadems. This simply speaks of the authority these ten kings will possess. They, in turn, are going to give their authority to the Antichrist. We're told that he's going to overpower three of them, and then the other seven will yield their power, their position of authority to him. And he will be the one world ruler at that time. Number C, on his heads were blasphemous names. Blasphemous names. The nations of the world from the very beginning have always blasphemed God. Our nation has joined them royally, has it not? We've royally entered into that now. At its beginning, I don't think that was the case, but now this nation is out and out blaspheming God and His righteous standards. Those who have ruled over those nations have always sought their own self-glory. Many of them have been wanted to, have, have wanted to be uh, worshipped as gods. And you know that from history as well. And when we consider the Caesars of Rome, you remember they promoted that Caesar worship and caused their subjects to worship them. Today, the countries of the world and their leaders have rejected and rebelled against God more than ever. If the church composed of all the believers is gone before Satan's seven, before this seven year tribulation begins and the world is absolutely overrun by demons that have been cast out of heaven, that have been brought up out of the pit, the abyss, uh, and, and in the air. I mean, you and I can't even begin to imagine what it would be like to have millions upon millions of demons just overrun the world. All of them. Doing Satan's bidding. The great red dragon's bidding. It's going to be 
a horrible, horrible time. And Antichrist and his world control and kingdom will be the worst of all. Well, number three. He is described as being like a leopard, a bear, and a lion. Let me read verse 2 again. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his authority and his throne and great authority. Well, Daniel also described these three kingdoms that were the leopard, which was Greece, and then the uh, bear, which was Medo-Persian, and then the lion, which was Babylonia. And what he's trying to say here is this empire that Antichrist is going to control will have components of those in like characteristic of the leopard and the bear that was stable on those feet and the lion which devoured and tore and so forth. He said that will characterize what this man and his kingdom are going to be like. J.B. Smith says this kingdom will advance with the velocity of the Grecian beast, the tenacity of the Medo-Persian, and the veracity of the former Babylonian. W.A. Criswell also has this insightful comment. He says regarding calling him a beast, we have here a symbol of him. When we see him, though, you will not see a creature like a panther or a leopard, his feet like a bear or with a mouth like a lion. When he appears, you will see the most fascinating, the most scintillating, the most magnetic personal mortal man that has ever walked across the stage of human history. Remember, Satan is an angel of light. And appears that way. And so he will with it through his number one man. Number four, the dragon gave him his power, throne, and great authority. The end of verse two. Well, the dragon is Satan. He's been cast out of heaven. He knows... He comes with great wrath. He knows he has but a short time left. And now he must infuse his number one man and give him his power, as it says there, as well, his power, his throne, and great authority. And as you study what John has to say about this beast out of the sea, you realize he uses the term in two different ways about this beast. He sometimes refers to the system, the kingdom, that he rules over, and at other times he refers to a person, the king. So two distinct things, and as you study the scriptures, you have to determine which is he meaning. Is he talking about his kingdom, or is he talking about the man himself that rules over that kingdom? Having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, or crowns with blasphemous names, as we saw, spoke of the final kingdom that has the characteristics of those six former kingdoms. So there it talks about the kingdom. But notice the text. Here we find the pronouns, him, his, he. Later we are told this person is cast alive into the lake of fire. And so you're talking about both the kingdom that he rules over as well as the king himself who rules over that kingdom. Please keep that in mind. So this beast is not only a kingdom, it's a person. Not only a kingdom, but a person. Here in verse 2, we're told the dragon gives him his power, his throne, and great authority. Look at chapter 11, verse 7. That's the first time we meet him, this man, the world's most powerful man. And here he's described in verse 7... As a beast. When they had finished their testimony, the beast, that's the two witnesses, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Look at chapter 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss. And go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he, notice the pronoun, that he was and is not and will come. So 
So Satan now cast out of heaven gives this man his power. Did not Satan himself enter Judas when his number one purpose was to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ? He didn't, he didn't give that up to other demons. It says Satan himself entered Judas. I think about that because there was a time when Satan offered Jesus, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and offered them to him. And he refused them, of course. Now he has found the man who will not refuse him, who will take that power and that glory and that kingdom. We actually met this man called the Antichrist before. Over in chapter 6, when the Lord Jesus Christ broke the first seal of those seven, we saw this man go out on a white horse. He had a bow in his hand, but no arrows. It means it was he was offering peace to the world, but not immediately out of warfare. And then he made a peace, a covenant with, with Israel to offer them peace, which later on he would break, as we'll see. And so we have met him before there. And I believe that this is a description of him coming and offering this peace to the world in the breaking of that first seal, and especially to Israel as he makes his covenant of peace spoken of by Daniel with Israel. And here we met him again in chapter 11, verse 7, which I just read, as that beast that comes out of the abyss and murders the two witnesses. And notice there, he is called the beast, speaking of his ferocious nature. And coming up out of that abyss. I believe that means that Satan himself indwelt and now possesses him. And he is allowed to murder the two witnesses who have been troubling the world and him and his one world government. And he is given unprecedented power and authority. Look at verse 7, chapter 13. Verse 7. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and overcome them. And authority, listen, over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. He didn't start out that way. When he went forth on that white horse with the bow and no arrows, he didn't start out ruling the whole world. But he began his military ventures at that particular time and obviously was recognized by multitudes throughout the world when he did that. We come now to the next major movement. The whole world will follow and worship this man. It's amazing the times we're living in right now. But the whole world will follow and worship this man. Look at verses 3 and 4. I saw one of his heads as if had been as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him number 1 under the whole world will follow and worship this man his amazing resurrection will astound the world. It's going to astound the world. Now in verse 3, we're faced with another challenge in interpreting this verse. In verse 1, the beast coming up out of the sea has ten horns and seven heads. In chapter 12, Satan is described as a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. We were able to trace those seven heads back to the seven world empires beginning with Egypt. So it would appear, it would appear that his head in chapter 13 verse 3 that we just read about, as if it had been slain and his fatal fatal wound that was healed is a reference to the one head being the Roman Empire that went out of existence but will be later revived in what we call the revived Roman Empire. And that's true. So, it's talking about a wound that was given to one of the seven heads. And the one that was wounded would be the Roman Empire. And then we know about the coming revived Roman 
empire. But we're going to see later that there's another aspect here. Before I get into that, though, I want to talk a little bit about that resurrection. I put it in quotes. You're dealing here with what the theologians call the unholy trinity. You had God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's the holy trinity. And now the unholy trinity. You have Satan, you have the Antichrist, and now you have the false prophet. Each one represents Satan like taking the place like the Father. Uh, the Antichrist being like the Lord Jesus Christ, and here's this resurrection. And then, of course, the false prophet who causes all the focus to be upon the Antichrist, just as the Holy Spirit causes all the focus to be upon the Lord Jesus Christ. There's other similarities. How long does Satan have here to establish his kingdom and rule the world? How long? Three and one half years. How long was Jesus' earthly ministry? Three and one half years. You also had the establishment of a one world kingdom. The Lord said, I will come back and set up my kingdom. We call that the millennial kingdom. What is Satan trying to do? Set up his kingdom so, so the Lord can't come back. And then both demand unconditional worship. So a lot of similarities here between this group, this unholy trinity and the holy trinity. But let's talk a little bit more about that amazing quote, resurrection, unquote, that's going to astound the world. Once again, we're met with a personal pronoun, his, in verse 3. I saw one of his heads. Not only that, but in verse 12, we're told the second beast, the false prophet, causes those who dwell upon the earth to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. And later he makes an image of the beast and causes the whole world to worship that image. People don't worship kingdoms. They worship individuals. And that's what this man demands. And that's what Satan demands, is unquestioned worship. The question is, though, can Satan bring forth life? If this is a resurrection of an individual as well as of a kingdom, can he bring forth life? We know he can cause death. That one's for certain. But can he also cause life? Most theologians believe not. If that is the case, He being the greatest deceiver who deceives the whole world, he must somehow bring forth a supposed resurrection that the world believes is real. And remember what Jesus said? For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. And we're told in chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, that the false prophet will perform great signs as well. I want to read for you what Paul wrote about this Antichrist over in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 5 through 12. He said, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, and now listen to this, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. And with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And so we shouldn't be surprised if it is a false resurrection that the world believes is accurate that actually took place. Number two about the whole world will follow and worship this man. His unprecedented authority will cause the world to worship him. This man will have authority like no man has ever had in the history of the world. Unprecedented authority. How will this man, the most dangerous man in the world, come to such great power? That's a legitimate question. Let me suggest a plausible scenario. You know I teach. 
what I believe the Bible teaches on this matter, and that is that the church will be taken out of here before the seven-year tribulation begins. Let's posit that as being plausible. So, this week, that's right, this week, before it's over, the Lord comes back on the air and immediately takes every believer on the face of the world home. Instantly. Gone. You and I can't even begin to imagine the chaos that would be, that would hit the world. Everywhere. Worldwide chaos. They're going to be looking for answers. They're going to be looking for somebody who can put Humpty Dumpty back together. Believe me. You know how they are. If somebody promises something, they believe it, don't they? You should know that in this nation. And so they're going to be looking for uh, the man. And guess what? Here comes Satan's number one man to take credit for this as well. Because somewhere around the beginning, I think, of the tribulation there, that seven years, after I believe we're gone out of here and you have worldwide chaos, you have warfare going on. And Ezekiel 38 and 39 take place. And if I understand that correctly, it is Russia and the Arab nations, and they decide they're going to move against Israel and destroy her and drive her into the sea. But something happens they were not expecting. The Lord intervenes and miraculously wipes out that huge army of Russian and the Arabic nations. I believe that's when the Antichrist takes credit for that. And the world says, we have a deliverer. We have somebody who can put this back together. I think that's how it begins. And how he comes into such power. And of course, Satan... God, God, well then, and then you have, as I mentioned before, Satan in the midpoint is cast, and that's where we are in chapter 13. Satan is cast out of heaven, and he's now upon the earth. He knows he has but a short time left, and you have all these demons now, because the demons out of the abyss, out of that pit, they're released, and so they're now moving all over the face of the earth. A couple Sundays we'll get to them as well, and all those judgments that will take place. And so you have a world where one-fourth of the people have lost their lives, worldwide chaos, and they're looking for a deliverer. And God said, or Satan says, I have my man ready. And that's when he comes and he indwells that man and gets into such staggering power. As I mentioned, we're now at the midpoint of the tribulation. And at that point, we find out that Satan indwells this man, and this man will literally conquer the whole world. You saw that down there in verse 7. He overcame them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given him. I mean, folks, this means he controls the whole world. Every bit of it at this point. We go back to what Satan's purpose was. He does not want Jesus Christ to be able to return. And above all, and beyond this, he wants that most, most of all, that everybody would worship him as God. And it will be the worst time in human history as God is pouring out his judgments upon the earth. And now Antichrist is moving and he, you're in warfare going on all, all over the place. And you have him slaughtering people. Not only do, do one fourth of the world's population die, but by this time, a third of the world joins in death as well. So the whole universe will be falling to pieces under the wrath of God and all hell breaking loose under the wrath of Satan. And the chief weapon that Satan has will be this man, the Antichrist, and all the demons, millions of them, will be assisting him in his reign of terror. We come next to the next major point in your outline. The man will blaspheme God and murder his followers. He will blaspheme God. And murder his followers. Let me read verses 5 through 7 and verse 10. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and overcome them. And authority over every tribe, people, tongue, and nation was given to him. Now down to verse 10. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and faith of the saints. This man will blaspheme God and murder 
his followers. Number one, the duration of his blasphemies and authority will be three and one half years. Stated there, three and a half years. Verse five, it's described in months as 42 months. That's three and one half years. And then in chapter 12, verse 6, and verses 13 and 14, that same time period from when Satan was cast out of heaven until the Lord Jesus Christ returns to set up his kingdom is given in days of 1260 days, as well as in segments, a time and times and half a time. It all is the same thing. It all is a way of saying three and one half years until the Lord comes. Number two, the focus of his blasphemies is threefold. The focus of his blasphemies is threefold in verse 6. Against God's name. I hope it does trouble you because you hear it so much, especially on television, but you may work around it where they take the name of the Lord in vain. Just common stuff anymore, isn't it? It's got to be thrown into all those programs and so forth. In Exodus 15.11, he says, Who is like Thee among the gods, O Lord, who is like Thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises and working wonders? In Psalm 35.10, Lord, who is like Thee? But now look at verse 4. What are the masses of humanity saying? Who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with Him? Nobody. He's God. And it's against God's tabernacle. It's amazing how people get into trouble, and they may not believe in God, but they still blaspheme Him and heaven above and all that's in it. And then against those who dwell in heaven. Could this not possibly be raptured believers, saints? Could it not possibly be that? Would it not include those two witnesses that the world saw? The beast coming up out of the abyss was able to murder them, and for three and one half days they laid in the street there, and all of the television was upon them at that time around the world as they watched those people that caused them misery, and we'll talk about that in two or three weeks from now. The trouble that those two men caused the whole world. And then suddenly, the world becomes alert as they watch them stand upon their feet and ascend right into their presence, right up into heaven. They see it all. And this angers and enrages the Antichrist, the beast, and Satan because it gives credence to the resurrection. It gives credence to the victory of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, even though he took their lives. And so he blasphemes those who dwell in heaven. Number three, he will absolutely dominate the entire world. He'll dominate it all. This will be a first. Satan has not been able to accomplish this until now. At the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period, his number one man, the Antichrist, is just getting into power. But now at the midpoint, the whole world, every part of it, is now under his control. This does not mean that he fully controls everybody because we know there are those like the remnant of Israel in chapter 12 that flee and God protects them from the Antichrist. And by the way, we read about Satan going after them, but really you have to tie in chapter 13. First, he has his choice, number one man. He indwells and possesses that number one man. And then that man's machinery is what's used to go after that remnant of Israel, as well as the rest that take the name of Jesus and keep his commandments. And as we get near to the end of those last three and one half years, we find that his world empire begins to fall apart as nations rise up against him. Number four, he will purposely hunt down and murder any who belong to God. That's his number one agenda. He will hunt down. He does not want any believers here. He does not want any of the remnant of Israel here so that Jesus cannot come back and accomplish his long promised purpose. So he's going to purposely hunt down and murder any who belong to God. Verse 7, it will also be given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And Daniel says the same thing. And Jesus described that in Matthew 24 and Mark and Luke as well. In verse 10, If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. 
If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. That's kind of the law of retribution. This is not time to pull out your sword like Peter did and cut off somebody's ear. It's to yield yourself to God. And he talks about the last part here is that perseverance and faith of the saints. With our amazing technology that we have today, no doubt all of that being under his control at this time, he will hunt down those who don't worship him, those who choose to worship God. He will use drones. We've talked about that. Certainly he will. And probably more modern technology that's not even been developed yet, but soon will. He will use that to track them down to destroy them. He's going to use their cell phones. He's going to use their computers. He's going to use everything that's on them by way of credit cards. He'll know it all. He controls it, folks. He absolutely controls it. So much so that they can't even go to a store and buy food if they don't have his marking. We'll get to that next week, Lord willing. If they have something to sell, they better be careful to whom they sell it. Because if they don't have the mark, they're going to get turned in. And that's one way he will track them down. Remember, the whole world is worshiping him. He's their Redeemer. He's their Messiah. He's the one that's finally going to put this world back together and give them some kind of hope. Even though you have three-fourths of the world slaughtered off. Yet there's still hope in this man. Mankind is so gullible and deceitful, is he not? I've been interested, I said this before, about the primetime television programming they've got on. I mean, you know, they talk about these wild, miraculous things. People are able to read other people's minds, and people, they put chips within them, and they can do these incredible things and feats and so forth. I think it's interesting that we're moving that way, and how that fits right in with these strange things you read about here that John wrote 2,000 years ago. One of the programs that you might be familiar with that's called Persons of Interest. I won't ask how many might know about that. It's called Persons of Interest, and it's about this, this computer that has all the information of all the people that tracks everywhere you go. You know, those uh, cameras that are on walls everywhere and street corners and in buildings and so forth. And anything you do, it tracks, so they always know right where you are and what you're doing. That, how interesting, because that fits right in with what you see here and how this man is going to control the world of mankind. Our world leaders are already very concerned about what you think, as you know, your viewpoints on different things and prejudices. For example, the National Education Association has said, it is with sobering awareness that we set about to change the course of American education for the 21st century by embracing the ideals of global community with equality and interdependence of all peoples and nations and education as a tool to bring about world peace. End of quote. Alan Bloom warns in the book, The Closing of the American Mind, that an integral part of the new global education is, quote, to force students to recognize that there are other ways of thinking in order to establish a world community and train its members to be persons devoid of prejudice. Many of you have heard of Common Core, supported by the founder Bill Gates, Bill and Linda Gates. And already a number of states have looked into it and they don't like it at all. But the problem is they might lose federal funding if they don't agree to use it in the school system. But Common Core is all about controlling what your child thinks and believes. If he or she has been taught, for example, that homosexuality is wrong, you say, well, how would they know that? Well, they have sensors, I guess, in the seats they sit in. They make them use their computers now at school. And uh, they have other means that they use that they can tell whether their blood pressure is rising on the rise and so forth. Interesting about the new watch that's coming out that will also do all of that. How many are planning on buying it for 300 some odd dollars? Okay, well, nobody here, I guess. Well, anyway, you think about the stuff that they're doing and that's how they're going to control them. And they figure if you are teaching your children that homosexuality is wrong, then you need to understand that is bullying in the home and they'll come into your home and take your child out of your home. These are the things that we're swiftly moving toward today. It all reaches its apex when we get to Revelation 13 and the two most dangerous men in the world control every tribe and people and tongue and nation. And we come now to the last part, God's solemn warning to the entire world. 
God's solemn warning to the entire world. Verses 9 and 10, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. What's God saying? He said, I'm taking my hands off. This will be Satan's hour. I'll let him do his best to show that he cannot accomplish what he thinks he can. If anyone is destined to, to be killed with a sword, with the sword he must be killed. But here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Number one, you need to know now that this day and this man are coming. You need to know it. You need to know now. How important is this? So important that the early apostles taught their new converts about the coming of this Antichrist. Having said that, I appreciate the encouraging words of J. Vernon McGee, and, you know, though dead, he now still speaketh. But I appreciate his words. He said, this will be the darkest hour in the history of the world and the church. Thank God I will not be here. He won't. He died. (laughs) But that's not why he said it. I am thankful I am not going through the great tribulation period. I will not be under Antichrist. I am under Christ. I am not looking for Antichrist. I am looking for Christ to come. I thought that was a good quote. But having said that, We take a good look at our Bibles and a good look at our world today and what is presently going on in our hearts say, lift up your head, your redemption is drawing nigh. Amen? God's people at least need to be awake and alert and understand like the sons of Issachar the times that they are now living in. And the most dangerous man in the world is going to force you to make your choice. Isn't that interesting? If you're caught here, you will be forced to make a choice. I said you need to, uh, this is God's solemn warning to the entire world. You need to understand, if somehow you move into the tribulation, you will be forced. The Antichrist himself, this most powerful man, will make you make a choice. To reject him. And refuse to worship Him will mean you must run for your very life if you even have the chance to run at all. He will use everything in His means to hunt you down and execute you. You will perhaps die of starvation or the need of medical attention that you cannot get either food or medical attention. Because you'll neither be able to buy in the stores or sell anything without His kingdom mark. But, listen to but... Choose to worship Antichrist. And and by the way, the mass of the people in the world will. Choose to worship Antichrist. And here is what God promises you. Turn to Revelation 14. Verses 9 through 11. This is what God promises you. If you choose to worship Antichrist. You say, I'm not going to worship him. I just need the mark so I can get food and medical provisions and so forth and so on. Survive this whole thing. Well, here's what God promises you if that's your thinking and your action in verse 9 and following here. Then another angel, a third one, followed, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone... If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They will have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives receives the mark of his name. That's what God promises. What a terrible, frightening time to live. A choice has to be made. Will I try to survive? Or will I not worship him and take his image and have to run for my life wondering, how am I going to feed my family? How are we going to survive? Where are we going to go? That's the situation, the choice is set before you at that point. But choosing to follow the Lord Jesus Christ 
And God promises you this, Revelation 13.10. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity you're going to go. If anyone kills with a sword, with a sword he must be killed. Remember, Antichrist's purpose is to lop off your head. It is to get rid of you once and for all. Be a bloody, bloody time with multitudes, millions upon millions upon millions of people losing their lives. For with the sword he must be killed. But here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. He said, still you're going to persevere. Still you're going to be faithful. And God will reward you. Now some will survive. Some will put their faith in God and Christ. And they will survive. But I share with you this morning. He said, behold, this is Paul's writing. Behold, now is the accepted time. Right now is the day of salvation. I'm not going to ask you, God asks you what He already knows about you. Are you genuinely saved? Is that a settled issue between you and God? That you know and you have that confidence in your heart based on the written Word of God, I am saved. I belong to Him. I put my faith in Jesus Christ You know, the frightening thing is that deception gets into that Satan uses. So many people are depending on a church. Sacraments or attendance and membership or baptism. They depend on that, all that stuff. And God says, no, it's in my son and him alone. Put your faith in him. He went to the cross for you. There he bore all your sin. And there he bore all your Punishment, your judgment. He bore it all. And when he cried out, it is finished. He's saying, God is satisfied with my payment for you. And then God proved it because on the third day he raised him up from the dead. Proving to you, just put your faith in him. And you know what he says? It isn't a reformation or religion. No, he says, you're born again. Not beautiful. A whole new life. Every person in this room that's saved and going to heaven, that's how they got saved. They put their faith in Jesus Christ and instantly, the, the Bible calls it being justified. That means God says, I declare you righteous. I clothe you right now with my son's righteousness and you are born again. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. I guess so. He's now my heavenly father. I'm now his child. I'm now clothed with his son's righteousness. I now possess right now eternal life that can never be taken away. And much, much more of that. Instantly it happens when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Here's my concern as I close this message about the world's most dangerous man. And I take you back to 2 Thessalonians. I want to read these verses to you. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 8. Then that lawless one, lawless one will be revealed. Whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. With all power and signs and false wonders. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Listen to that. Listen to that. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. Why? In order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Many a theologian believes that people who have had the opportunity to receive Jesus Christ now, but choose not to, for whatever reason, and then the Lord takes the church out of here, the tribulation begins, that once it begins, they will never be given another opportunity. Their doom is sealed. They will be damned. Because they chose not to receive the knowledge of the truth. I cannot back that up. But I can back up Paul's words. Behold, 
Now is the accepted time. Right now, now is your day of salvation. We're living on the edge, dear ones. We really are living on the edge. Troubling times are going to come, and they're going to come rapidly. And we could be taken out of here swiftly, and the tribulation could begin. And you saw how terrible, and we'll see that in coming weeks, Lord willing, how terrible this world's going to get. I encourage you to put your faith in Jesus Christ if you've not done so. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the written word of God. There is so much more about this Antichrist, this most powerful man that's going to come. He could be alive already. That doesn't concern me so much, Lord, as it does that I need to walk faithfully with you now. I need to be walking in light of your imminent return, Lord Jesus, to take me out of here with the rest of the bride of Christ, your bride. I pray that the church will be faithful in its witness. I pray that we will be an example to a lost world so they can see the gospel, which is the glory of Christ, and know how to put their faith in you. Father, I would pray for any who are here that are not saved that, Holy Spirit, I cannot move on their hearts. I cannot bring the conviction. I cannot persuade them, but you can. And we pray for them. We want them to know they are saved. This day is marked down. It is very soon going to come. Thank you for the victory we have in you, Lord Jesus Christ. And as John would pray, the last chapter of this great book of Revelation, the last book in our Bibles, nearly the last verse, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.